Hi, and welcome to Doing the Opposite Business Disruptors, the podcast where you get to meet leaders who have swum against the tide, thrown out the rule book, and changed the way their sector does business. I'm Jeff Dewing, and I'm the founder and CEO of Cloud FM, a facilities management business where we thrive on taking data-driven risk so our clients don't have to. Today, you're going to meet Sam White. Sam has endured a dysfunctional childhood with some incredible challenges. Despite suffering from multiple panic attacks every day and eating junk food to suppress her anxiety, went on to become a successful entrepreneur and podcaster. After starting her first insurance business at just 24 years old, saw incredible success. In fact, such significant growth enabled Sam to make a huge decision to move to Beverly Hills. And close by were A-listers such as Charlie Sheen, Tom Jones, Paris Hilton, and Robbie Williams. Robbie's shoulders with these type of people even resulted in Robbie Williams singing at her wedding with her former partner. However, it all started to go wrong in 2012 when a change to regulation meant that Sam lost 60% of her business in less than a month. Sam then decided to return to the UK to rebuild her business. She has since become a multi-award winning CEO of her group company Freedom Services, which houses a number of insurance brands, one of which is in Australia. Due to her personal experiences, every policy written by her business results in a $5 donation to numerous domestic abuse charities. She's also a regular commentator on media, on shows such as the BBC's Wake Up To Money and Ian King live on Sky News. What I'm interested to know is why she has had such a desire to change the insurance industry and how she has managed to build her resilience after experiencing so many ups and downs right from childhood. Welcome, Sam, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, Jeff. You're more than welcome. Can't wait. I'm looking forward to this. Right, so Sam, can you perhaps set the scene for us? Why you started your first business at 24, and then after enjoying its success and moving to, wait for it, Beverly Hills, um, what was the regulation change that was so devastating to you and your business that resulted in you returning to the UK? Wow. Yeah. So why did I start a business when I was 24? I mean, the simple answer is probably that I'm unemployable, which is probably true of you too, Jeff. I find (laughs) most entrepreneurs that I meet are unemployable. Some of us were unemployable from a very young age. Like I've always... I don't like to say anti-establishment, but I, I guess a little bit, you know, I've always challenged authority. I, I got chucked out of Sunday school when I was like six after probably only one kind of session for asking too many questions. And I think <laughs> I, I think that was, um, that, that was probably um, a, a key factor for me. So I, I went to university, did a psychology degree. Had to leave that because of family circumstance. I had quite a traumatic childhood. Mum was a dysfunctional alcoholic, and I just really needed to kind of get out on my own and and kind of have my own space. 
for lots and lots of different reasons. The first job that I got, my first proper job, went really well. So I got promoted loads. You know, I started off in telesales with them. And then within two years, I was like head of national accounts. I was on 50 odd thousand a year, company car, you know, all, all these things that for a northern 20 something female were, were kind of a little bit unheard of. I was earning so much more than my, my kind of peer group, but I wasn't taking very good care of myself. So I was five stone overweight, smoking like a chimney. Um, you know, still dealing with a lot of childhood trauma, or rather not dealing with it. But the one thing that I was good at was was work. So, you know, I focused all of the attention on that, but but there was there was no real balance there. And then I broke my leg having a water fight at three o'clock in the morning with um, some male friends, which was ill-advised, 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 dislocated the ankle, broke the leg, so was laid up for six weeks. I split up with um, my boyfriend at the time, and considering I'm married to a woman now, that's probably just as well. And then my mum died. And I think the, the combination of those three things together were just a bit of an epiphany for me that I wasn't living the life that I wanted to live or the life that I should be living. And I just decided that it was the right thing to kind of um, get out from from under um, the, the, the kind of working environment that wasn't working for me. Right. And, and so aside from the fact that clearly one reason was that you wanted to, I don't know, control your own destiny, I guess is the best phrase. Um, what, 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 what made you, what, yeah, what was it that was going to be so different about your business? Yeah, you know, so I think at that age, because I was so young, I was only 24, I, I don't think I had a real crystallized view of, oh, I'm going to make this incredible business that's totally different to everybody else. What I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt is that I didn't want anyone else in control of my destiny and I had to be financially independent. That was it for me. So I, I set up in my sister's conservatory and initially I wasn't doing what I ended up doing. The first few months I was kind of finding my feet and I was doing um, sales on behalf of other companies because I knew I could sell. And I had this idea that if I could sell on behalf of other businesses that weren't particularly good at selling, that it would give me flexibility and also interest. You know, I get bored easily. I'm probably, you know, undiagnosed ADHD. And so the idea of being able to pop into <laughs> different businesses was, was kind right. of cool. Yeah, yeah. But uh, quite quickly, I stumbled across a firm that worked in the sector that I'd worked in previously. And they were super keen because I'd got a bit of a reputation for being able to, to get results. And so they were super keen to work with me. And that ended up being the business, the first business that I formed, which was Action365, which was a, a claims management company, which was the same as the business that I'd worked for prior to breaking my leg and, and kind of deciding that I wanted to do something different. And I, I think I knew, for me, it was all about... Um, not necessarily reinventing the wheel, just doing it with um, a different approach. And, and, and what I'd recognized in my previous job was that the relationship side of the business was really important and that the, the brokers in the market were looking for businesses that actually really listened to them and took a sort of proactive approach. Right. You then obviously went on a journey of quite a lot of success. 
And then you came out with this wild idea of why don't I go to Beverly Hills? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you know, and that was probably one of the things that people were sort of like, what the hell is she doing? But I tell you, my thing is I do consider myself to be an entrepreneur and not a CEO. And I I sometimes take the role of CEO just because the two tend to get shoved together. But but actually, I think it's very different skill sets. So my sort of role, and I've set up a number of different businesses, and the bit that I get excited about is the first bit, like pulling together all the right elements to get it off the ground, getting the right team in place, kind of all that stuff. Love it. Once it's working... I really have very little interest in being involved. And and I'm probably more of a distraction than a benefit, if I'm honest, because I've got that kind of, I'm always looking to do something new. So, you know, and in an existing business that you're trying to scale up, you need people that are just going to grind it down and and kind of keep to the detail and and tweak and tweak and tweak. So at that stage, the the Beverly Hills adventure, I'd, I'd got two really successful companies at that point, but I got management teams in both of them. They were going well. They were, they were producing a, a lot of profit, a lot of revenue. Um, and I was just sort of going through the motions. And I went over to Beverly Hills with my then partner at, at, at the time because we were looking at doing IVF and LA is the best environment for our situation to, to get it done. So I... I <laughs> I, I mean, I, I do lovingly refer to these years as my arsehole years, um, mostly because I spent such a ridiculous amount of money on ridiculous shit. Um, and so I, I kind of, you know, there was various things that I, I did during that period of time that I look back and go, really, Sam? Did that seem like a good idea at the time? <laughs> um, and I rented this house on Mulholland Drive which was called the Boathouse. That to give you some concept, Jeb, it was subsequently rented by One Direction when they were over at the high. <laughs> so it was, oh, it, you know, I, I I won't be so crass as to discuss the cost of it, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. Anyway, so I rent this house for a month, and we go through the IVF process. And of course, I fell in love with Beverly Hills because it's like this magical, you know, and it was an adventure, you know. And and so I remember my partner looking at me at the time and saying, oh, I could really live here. I said, so why don't we? Mm. Is that Tom Jones walking his dog past the bottom of our road? (laughs) That that did actually happen. (laughs) That actually happened. (laughs) Only he was jogging and wearing this ridiculous wetsuit thing that um, was obviously some kind of sweatsuit. Um, And he said, good morning. But yeah, um, you know, for me, it just, it was like, why not? So one of my sort of core um, principles is, is always why not? And you're only here for a short, amount of time if you get the opportunity to do something that's um you know exciting or different or whatever you should take it and just see where you land of course yeah and so you know she said I'd really like to live here I said why don't why don't we um and so I then started investigating could I set up a similar company to what I was doing in the UK could I do it in in the states Mm -hmm. and I decided that I could whether I could or not is an entirely different matter, but I decided that there was enough there and I was going to do it. So yeah. I yeah. gave full autonomy to the management teams in the UK. I rented a house on Mulholland Estates, not the one that I'd got 
down the road, one actually in a gated community there, um, and set about trying to conquer the US market, which was a lot of fun. Ultimately not successful, but a lot of fun and a lot of experiences along the way. What happened that then enabled you to say, do you know what, I've got to go back to the UK? Yeah, so that both of the businesses at that stage were completely centred in the claims space. Um, with motor claims. So we were handling claims on behalf of clients. We were working with insurance companies, supporting them with their processes. But the the, the main sort of thrust of the income was was in this very specific sort of non-fault motor claims environment. Um, and the government decided that they were going to remove a large proportion of the income that solicitors could make in that environment. And the solicitors were our sort of main customer base and so it hit us really hard so there was something like 60 percent of the income was removed within a, a four-week period you know the management team that I had were, were good people and very solid and safe pair of hands but it, in essence what what that did was create a situation that we had to almost start from scratch again so I was back in almost startup mode because I needed to completely re configure the business. I think we went down from 350 staff to 100 staff and I had to find very quickly new revenue streams that would support the gap in the revenue. Um and it you yeah, know it was, a, yeah. it was it was a cold bucket of water. I'm I, I I'm sure you've had similar experiences yourself. Mm. It was the first time I'd experienced that because up until then every every year we'd increase profits. Every year we'd kind of got bigger and stronger and better. And then it was, you know, suddenly this tidal wave of, of um, challenges that kind of came across the bow. And it was, a, it was a wake up call. As I say, I've been swanning around and spending far too much money on absolute crap. And then you, <laughs> you kind of go, <laughs> well, yeah. That's what you do, right? That's part of the journey. That is part of the journey, yeah. And then of course, when you, so when you talk about that bow wave, uh, we think about it. I mean, that's not dissimilar to the impact it had on lots of business for you know COVID, because it hit from left field. You didn't see it coming, and it's going to have an instant impact on every business, wasn't it? So, well, apart from Zoom, of course. Yeah, apart from Zoom, yeah, they did very well out of it. Um, yeah, no, and mm. we got hit again during <laughs> COVID. So that you know, we'd recovered, we were in yeah. good shape, and again, you know, when when COVID hit, I, it did make me realise that I probably should have sold sooner. And I think. Lots of entrepreneurs that end up running what you would describe as a lifestyle business where you, you're making good income, but you're just sort of using it to support your lifestyle. Carry on. Yeah, you yeah, carry yeah. on. Um, yeah. And actually, you know, I, I think the one lesson for me is probably that rather than just keep building other businesses, I should have probably got into that sell cycle sooner in my, in, in, yeah, in my journey to get a bit of um, mm. security back in. Yeah. So you're now back in the UK. You're, you've reinvigorated your business. You've got it up to a good space pre-COVID. And I completely accept what you're saying. When you're a youngster, as I was, I started my first business at 24. And um, you start a business and it is, when you think about it, people sort of about, you know, what was your purpose? What was this? And in those days, your purpose was was about controlling your destiny, being uninfluenced yes. by anybody yeah. around you. you. You want to make the decisions. You want to decide how your life's going to be and you want control of it. So I get that. But then as you sort of move through your career and you get more and more experienced and, and there's, you know, there's things that are happening around you, you think, That's, this is just not good. 
you suddenly understand, you, you, you establish your purpose, right? And our purpose is, our industry is, is corrupt and deceitful and God knows what. There's not a bad person in the industry, but they're all working in a bad environment. I started this business at 45 years old or whatever and grew it from the ground up. I wasn't in the conservatory, I was in a garden shed, but similar story. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, and the, the idea was I wanted to fix the industry. You know, it, it was about enriching other people's lives and that, that's my purpose. That's what gets me out of bed every single day because you've come for that maturity. So how would you align yourself in a similar question about what you're trying to do with the insurance industry you know, in the environment now you're very, very experienced? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting that. And I think probably similar, I set up Stella in Australia um, a couple of years ago. So similar timeline to you in, in the same way, because yeah. I'm 47 now, so mm-hmm. um, Stella was at 45. Right. I launched an insurance business in 2016. So I switched sides from the claims business into insurance. And insurance is very male-dominated and very quite, considered to be quite a staid sensible industry and I think for a number of years um, a lot of my purpose was about challenging the status quo and challenging their perceptions about what a business leader in that space might look like so I'm very visible and vocal and noisy and I talk a lot about it's more about how we do things as opposed to what we do, because insurance is insurance. Yes, you can innovate with underwriting principles, etc. But I'm more interested in the business environment. And, I, you know, I'm not a fan of hierarchy. I'm not a fan of this sort of command and control style of leadership that kind of says, you do it my way or don't do it at all. And I, I wanted to show that you could empower people and also bring people into teams that they haven't seen before from different backgrounds different types of because there isn't a lot of diversity in the insurance industry so I've always kind of really pushed that agenda and then um, when I launched Stella it was kind of the perfect synergy of all of the things that I have wanted to push in the sense that Stella is an insurance product that's designed specifically for women. Now, by that, we don't exclude men. So we we absolutely do insure men. But the product design, the experience, the marketing, everything has been designed from a female perspective. And that's really unusual in the financial services sector because it is so male-dominant. Inevitably, we build stuff in our own image. Like you can't help it. It's just you know the w- way that we're programming. Well, no, no, your natural view, yeah, yeah. Your, your your natural view is going to sit in a certain space. And I read this fantastic book called um, "Invisible Women: The Truth About Data Bias," um, and it just highlights how much stuff is just by default designed by men for men. Even, you know, we were laughing, like even the height of shelves in a kitchen. And, you know, you say that the kitchen is a woman's space, but the shelf height is around the average (laughs) height of a man, not a woman. (laughs) Medicines, you know, seat belts, all these kind of things. So so my purpose really was, was flipping that on its head and saying, can I take something as male dominated as insurance and make it? extremely female-led and not just you know with the design of the products and the way that we treat staff and the way that we kind of approach life but also we give five dollars from every policy sold to women and girls emergency center so which is a domestic abuse charity and 
in Australia. So it's it's about that sort of empowerment of, of other women as well. So here's my ignorance on the insurance world. So you've just told me exactly and brilliantly what you're doing. And then the first thing that pops into my head is Sheila's wheels. <laughs> Everyone always says that. Everyone always says that. <laughs> now, well, okay. <laughs> so Sheila's wheels was very successful business. No two ways about it. But it, it was a mm. product that was designed by men in what they think women for women for women <laughs> women want yeah and you know and again yeah. I, I very successful and I'm sure um, that uh, I'm sure that there's a huge demographic of women that like their advertising campaign. I personally find it extremely condescending. You know, it's a pink car. Right. It's yeah, a bunch of, of women with the hair doing, and 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 Stella is 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 not like that at all. Stella is very kick ass. It's very, you know, showing a, a, a huge range of different demographics in, in terms of women. Our, our ad campaign is very much about challenging stereotypes that that are put on women. It's really about that sort of purpose-driven connectivity. And yeah, I mean, women are better drivers than yeah, men yeah. statistically. And so commercially, it makes sense to give them better rates. We actually can't in the UK now because mm. the European directive meant it, that they were unable to give the discounts to women that women were entitled to based on their driving. Um, but we're not in the EU though. No, so we should be able to get rid of that law, which is something that I'm... Um, looking at at the moment, but it's still in place as it stands at the moment. You have to unpick something like right. that in order for it to go yeah, forward. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. So the bit I find really interesting about what you just said there about um, unconscious bias, I call it, right? So um, I've done a podcast with a lady that uh, you may or may not know, Mandy Hickson, who is the first woman fast jet pilot. And yeah. she's a keynote speaker. She's an incredible lady and just absolutely blows you away when she speaks. But um, And I've known her for a few years and she came on my podcast. And, and the bit, the story that she tells is, is not dissimilar to yours. In trying to go through flight training, becoming a fighter pilot, she failed every exam that you have to pass. And she took on the establishment. And yeah. she said, this is unconscious male bias. And, um, and in the end, she eventually got them to listen to her after just trying to wear people down. And um, they eventually said to her, look, we're going to give you a shot of this and we want to see how far you get before you foul, just as a test case. So she's got the opportunity of her dreams to fly a jet under the big umbrella that says, we're just waiting for you to foul. Anyway, she went through this process um, and they accepted and they'd done some tests and they realized that there was unconscious bias. So they changed the methodology of the way they asked the questions of those bits and pieces. And after she'd proven that she was an incredible pilot, they put her through a test again that they'd now revisited as a result of the, the claims. And she passed every test. Yeah, yeah. Which proved, even though, and like I said, it wasn't, in, it, wasn't on, it wasn't on purpose, it was just a natural behavior. And then it then now enables people to say, Do you know what, we need to check that there's not unconscious bias in this process because it is excluding people by default. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was stupid stuff when I read that book that I'd not even considered. Like, there's far more male concert pianists than, than women, but the piano itself is designed 
for male-sized hands. hands. <laughs> and, you know, that put, yeah, it, it puts it puts women at a disadvantage. Yeah, of course it and does. It, yeah. it, it just isn't something that you would naturally think of, of course, because it, it's, it's stuff that's been around for so long that we just accept that that's the way that it is, but it doesn't mean that it necessarily has to be. No, 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 of course. And I think the other thing that's also interesting, which I'm, I'm fascinated because I've been listening to you and picking out the bits that I guess push a button for me so when you go through you talk about command and control it, it's it's like we've all been wired to believe that that's how life should be run in a business environment right you know it's 8 30 or you're at 8 35 are you going to yeah. work your extra five minutes on your lunch hour and all that nonsense right so and it's taken covid to give everybody a real slap in the head to say what are you doing and and now i find myself in a situation where um we have almost Almost entirely, we we was a we had five six offices across Europe and employed about three four hundred people, and it was all about you know the nine to five process and lack of flexibility and we don't take on part time workers and yeah all this all this sort of stuff that you're wired to believe is the way you run a business and then something like COVID comes along gives you a slap and go what are you doing and we've now moved to an entire one hundred percent work from home organisation. Um, where people control their destiny, right? So there's none of this fear and guilt about, shit, I've got to phone the governor up to let them know I'll be late because I've got to take the kids to school, or the partners are having a row because one thinks their job is more important than the other. Um, and all that stress placed upon people, the kids coming home need football practice. Um, well, I can't, I'm working. And you've got uh, this natural stress. You think, why is, that, why, is, why is that even here? And then, of course, we are now in a situation where as an organisation, no one has a meeting before 10 a.m. in the morning, so the kids, so the parents can do the school run, and everybody is, you know, switches off at two to go and collect the kids. And, and if they have to spend two hours with the kids doing their own work, then that's what they do. But they control their own destiny. All you do is you agree the outputs that they're going to do, and how they do it is entirely up to them. And we've now found that we have a 100% engaged workforce that are a 1,000 times happier than I've ever seen a group of people be because they're influencing their own destiny. And you've said the same thing when you talk about, you know, we're a family, you know, it's all about the freedom of choice, the freedom of, of voice, um, the freedom to foul, the freedom to be challenging. And that's what brings the best out of the human, right? Whereas otherwise, you, you're own, behaving the other way, only 50% of people are coming to work or they're only bringing 50% of themselves to work because it's apathy and it's robotic and it's, what well, you know, I'm doing it because I have to. Whereas now, suddenly people are getting a passion and a drive and they're doing what they love. And, you know, for me, the psychology of that is is fascinating. I mean, I've, I've replaced myself with a psychologist as CEO in Freedom right. um, who had been doing coaching and psychological work with, with the team. And the interesting thing about a sort of command and control model is that if you look at transactional analysis from a psychology viewpoint, it's, you know, the adult, child, parent role within any kind of dynamic and when you've got that command and control, you're automatically taking a parent role and asking them to take a child role. And there's two things about that that Andy always says to me is one thing is the child always controls the parent. So as a you know, as a as an entrepreneur, you can get very frustrated with work. Like, why won't they just do what, you know, <laughs> blah, blah, just just like as a parent with a child, we get that that kind of and a child always controls the parent. And secondly, it's that, you know, they'll never go any further forward if it's always, I'll tell you what to do and you follow it. it because yeah, it's, yeah. A, you know, it's fundamentally, it's, you know, it, it's a, a, a ringed kind of um, dynamic between the two of you. 
that stops them going outside the circle. And actually, a lot of the time, as we know as entrepreneurs, you want to go outside the circle because outside the circle is where the magic happens. And so creating an environment at work that is genuinely adult to adult. So I'm okay, you're okay. I'm trusting you. This is the shared problem. And I trust you to go and find a solution to to, to resolve that. You just go so much further farther faster than you'd ever would under under an, a, another dynamic but I think in the past I didn't trust myself enough so I used to hire people that I thought were going to protect me from myself so you know I'd hire very corporate um complete opposite to me in terms of their their type of mentality and my view was okay well that will that will balance me out but what actually ended up happening is that the culture and kind of freedom of the business was was constrained because of that so it's it's exciting to me to look at it from a totally different perspective and to to to, to sort of push forward on this this psychological approach to leadership instead of as you say, the traditional model. And I guess that's about courage, right? It's the courage to say, do you know what? You know, maybe I've been getting this wrong. Maybe I need to take that risk. Maybe I need to do these things that suddenly just transform your life. I mean, you've just mentioned an example there where I use the term, you're in the jar and can't read the label. And the key is you've got to get out of the jar to be able to read the label, right? So, um, and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, how, yeah. and how do you bring people on that journey? Well, the easiest way to bring people on the journey, if someone says to me once, um, I'll do a few keynotes, and they said to me, so tell me, Jeff, what do you think it is that makes you know, a great leader? How can I become a better leader than I am now? And I'll just ask them one question. I'll say, how many decisions have you made this week? And they'll say, five, 10, 15. I'll say, what about this month? They'll say, oh, no, 30, 40, 50. I said, the day you can actually say to me, you've not made a single decision this week is the day you're on the journey of becoming a great leader. Because the whole key about bringing people on the journey is you let them and you help them work out how to find their own solutions. Because the moment you give them the solution, then you've removed all accountability. Because when it goes wrong, it's your fault, right? And they become a robot. So when they come up with a solution, they will break their back to create the outcome. And of course, the other part of being a great leader is if you're in a room in a meeting, whatever, you're the last person to speak because you then get the benefit and wisdom of everybody else's view. And too many people think that a leader is about giving everyone the answers, and it clearly isn't. It's about helping those people find their own answers. And that's stuff we learn as we get more experience, right? And you obviously learn, you've learned that and, and you're executing it and you're getting the benefit of it. Yeah, no, totally. And it's funny because that's exactly what, with Andy coming in as CEO, I've witnessed. He's incredibly good, better than I am at that. At resisting the urge to jump in with the solutions for them. But I think that there always does become those moments then where they're really inviting you to help support. And at what point do you also step in and support? Like, And that's always been a challenge, I think, for me, is that knowing when to hold back and knowing when they need just like a little bit of a a lift you know, up, jump, yeah. Just like, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, yeah. we all do, like we all do. All right, Sam, listen, we're getting to um, the end. Let's, let's sort of move on to the final one, which is a wrap-up. And this might be a bit of a challenge. Um, please take time to pause on it if you want to. But um, considering your knowledge, your experience, the stuff you've been through, the trauma you've suffered as well, what one piece of advice would you give anybody or a budding entrepreneur who sees that they've got a desire or a passion to change something in their world, but they're worried about becoming a disruptor. What one piece of advice, if there was only one, would you give that person? 
but they're worried about being a disruptor. Yeah, they're worried about, about the impact. Going against yes, yes. The, yeah. the grain. Yeah. I mean, the one statement that I love that gives me a great deal of comfort is nobody cares. And, and by that, what I mean is that people are, by and large, completely obsessed with themselves. And we tend to think, you know, from an ego viewpoint that everybody's looking at what we're doing and, you know, looking at us. And, and actually, they're not. They're caught up in their own things. So my my view is, you know, it's like the dance, like no one's watching or, or, or you know, any of those fantastic statements yeah. that we have. My view is from a business viewpoint, nobody cares. Do what you think is the right thing to do. Be true to yourself in that regard. And I, I always find that, that good things come from that. Boom. What a great saying. What a great piece of advice. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And that's been absolutely fantastic. Listen, Sam, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Uh, it's been great talking to you. I've heard so much stuff about you from some of our mutual friends at Thinking Hat and whatever. And it's um, and it's it's been a great pleasure to actually meet you and catch up with you and uh, uh, and see that incredible smile, which has been fantastic. So thank you so much for joining me today. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and hope to catch up again soon. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jeff. Well, a big thanks to Sam for taking the time to talk to me today. Wow, wow, what a great story. And there's a lot more to it than, than the bit we had time for today. But that journey of starting businesses and going to LA and rubbing shoulders with the A-listers and stuff and, and then the impact of legislation, incredible. But the bit I guess that stood out for me most was that great answer to my final question. What advice would you give someone that wants to become a disruptor? And I've reflected on that and what a great answer no one cares when you think about that everyone is so wrapped up in their own world that sometimes you just get consumed by what people think about what you're doing in actual fact they don't they're consumed in what they're doing themselves and as a result you then get that freedom to go and do something entirely different which actually means that you could argue that being a disruptor is the easiest thing to do well worth a thought. Do listen back to earlier episodes of Doing the Opposite, where you'll hear from a good friend of mine, Linda Green, who tells her incredible story of her traumatic childhood, the death of her father at an early age, and then her house burning to the ground, leaving her husband and children homeless. It's an incredible story that will have you gripped from start to finish. I'm Jeff Dewing author of best-selling book, Doing the Opposite, and CEO and founder of CloudFM. CloudFM are changing the rules of our industry and doing the opposite to create best value for our clients. If you'd like to know more, please visit our website at cloudfmgroup.com or simply follow us on LinkedIn. You can also find out more about my podcast and my incredible guests at podcast.cloudfmgroup.com. And finally, a big thanks to my team. Nicola Crawshaw at Cloud FM, Sarah Waddington of Astute PR, Thinking Hat PR, and of course my production team, What Goes On Media, who've helped me launch this incredible new disruptive podcast. Thanks for listening. Listener.